I think what happens in large companies is that the truth gets sacrificed. And there's so much of the information that gets cleaned up and presented to the execs to present good news. Things are going well. We did well here. It's awesome. Like the team has done a great job. It's fantastic. It makes it hard to deal with the problems that you have. As the company gets bigger and bigger, you're basically getting a very distorted view of reality at the top. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. You left Iran when? You were five? Yeah. Do you remember anything? If I remember Iran, absolutely. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, of course. Do you actually? Or is that kind of like the story you're supposed to tell as like the origin stories of you? My parents challenged this to say the same thing. And I described to them where the house was, where the rooms were, things that happened. Plus we fled. So those things I remember. And I also remember the bombings. Those you remember, right? Because your parents are freaked out and stuff. So yeah, I remember. From the bombings, do you remember more viscerally your parents' fear? Or do you remember just like, what the hell is going on? I mean, it's hazy because I was probably four. And what year a long was this? Time ago. Probably 83, 84, okay. something like that. I don't yeah. actually know. And well, I remember this one particular bombing. I remember the sirens went off. So it was like, and then we don't care as kids. But then I remember parents freaking out and running around. And then I remember they turn off the lights in the whole city so that the airplanes can't see where they're bombing. So that I remember because we were in a, my parents were affluent, so we were in the hills, so we could see the whole city. So you can see actually, that I remember, that you saw the whole city, like, they turn off the lights or the electricity or whatever in sort of different patches. So you see it's like, it goes off. So that I remember. And then I remember they put on a candle. I remember they said, get under the table. And then I remember they had like a little radio that they tuned and then they listened to what happened. Suck it, Bosh, get under the table. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that I remember. And then I remember, it could have been a different incident, maybe not the same night, I don't know if it was, that there was one night they flew really close and it's kind of crashed our windows and they bombed the building next door and it literally felt like our building collapsed. Like I felt they hit our building, our building collapsed, but it didn't. So the next day we went outside and it was like a building across the street, like on the same block. And there were like women crying and there was blood and it was oh, like, and the whole God. building had like just collapsed, which I, at the time I th- it looked like a skyscraper, but probably I was small. It was probably a three-story building. Or and something. you haven't been back. No. I haven't been back either. I no. mean, been back. I've never even been. Yeah. I, I can't go. Yeah. It's too difficult. Yeah. You just screw up my passport. Yeah. You cook Persian food? Yeah, I do can. You? Yeah, yeah. Like you can do a kubita on the grill or something? I can, yeah. And it won't fall off <laughs> <laughs> into the grill. How's your mom at cooking? Okay, my dad's better. He's the chef. Yes. Do you have a meal when you go home? Is there something that they know, like, Ali June's coming home. This is what we want the fridge to look like. Yeah, because, you know, you can buy any dishes you like. There's Persian restaurants everywhere. Yeah. So I get them Turkish dolma. It's like you stuff, uh-huh. it's like stuffed paprika with, uh, you know, dolma kind of. That's that's the thing. So every time I go home, that's what I ask my mom to do. My mom was, she just called me. And every time I go home, my fridge, the, her fridge is, I call it my fridge. It's basically my fridge. It's yeah. still stocked. With the same things that I used to eat when I was like eight years old. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah it's that's like how the it is. sense of nostalgia. Exactly. Because they still want me to be their little son. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. They think you want the same stuff. Exactly. 
What was your first ever job? What was the first time where someone paid you? It doesn't have to be like a W-2 necessarily, but someone paid you for do something. There's a bunch of different jobs. We would go to the local pizzeria and we would just get their cans and take them to the supermarket and we'd go back and we'd get pizzas for free. So that I remember I really enjoyed doing. And then it was uh, newspapers going and actually delivery of like ads actually to people's homes. So you have to run up the stairs and put it in their post. Those are probably the first two. But then pretty early on, already in like seventh grade, I was into computers and stuff. So everybody had bought a PC at home. So I was that kid that they would bring in and fix their, you know, when it had viruses. It was Windows days. Probably I was uh, 12, 13, 14, <laughs> you know, and it would give me 500 Swedish krona, which is, you know, quite and a you bit. You were in Sweden at this time. You, yeah. you left Iran, moved to Sweden because yeah. they were the only ones that would yeah. take you basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you give you like basically 50 bucks, which is a lot for a kid. Like I would get 50 bucks to Dude, fix you're their laptop. It's huge amounts of money. And yeah, so that was that. And then eventually I started writing code. In the early days when, you know, the internet was just starting, you, you could write a lot of software and make a lot of money. So... I was kind of flushed, to be honest, <laughs> from pretty early on because of this. How did you end up getting from Iran to Sweden? What did that actually look like? It was hectic. We had 24 hours to get out, and that's it. Why? Why that shot clock? Someone had been captured, and they're like, we got to go. We got to move quickly. We got 24 hours, so it's ASAP. The block Leave was everything. hot. Yeah, so we were, out. we were out the next day. You left all your stuff? Yep, everything. My parents brought whatever jewelry they had, but then at the airport, they gave my dad a hard time and said, hey, you can't go. You, you and your daughter can't go, but you know me and my mom, they can go. So my dad gave him all the jewelry. Uh, just paid <laughs> I remember, off. he just gave him everything. Because you're right, the kid you're watching, of right? Course. So he just gave it all to the people at the customs there. And they just took it and they're like, go, go, it's, go, go. It's very like Argo-esque, no? Yeah, that's... yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what they, and then, so yeah, so we had nothing then. So we had zero, literally zero. And was the, basically your wealth leaving Iran tied up in the jewelry basically like that was like the gold and that was the family like did you have wealth when you got to sweden or was it basically Nothing. just it was gone in iran gone zero how does that happen because i've heard tales from my family too where like we had money yeah and then somehow like we're starting brand spanking new in america like yeah. how, how does that happen well you gotta leave you gotta just it's kind of like your house is on fire Gotta go. You're not like, oh, let me go like get my papers and like, you know, you just run. Yeah, run, like run, you're run, not run, going run. to get like checks from the bank or anything. No, and also the banks are like, these were days, you know, there were sanctions this, right after the embassy crisis in 79 and then uh, there's war with Iraq and, you know, it was difficult times for in, in that part of the world. So, yeah. And also my parents' uh, view was, uh, we're going to be here two years or one year and then we go back. To Sweden. No, we go back to Iran. Oh, you were going to be in Sweden yeah, for, for one or two Yeah, we're here for like a year or so yeah, until yeah. things cool down. And then when everything is perfect, we go back in a year or so. Right. Or maybe it's like, it'll be two years. It's like COVID. Like, this will be a week. Exactly. This will blow over. And then we're all going to come back to the office. Yeah, is it a V-shaped return or is it like, what is it? So yeah, that's what happened. What happened when you moved to Sweden? Like, was life good? Did you enjoy it? Well, I mean, the problem was my parents' attitude was kind of like, we're going to go back, right? And so it so, always felt very ephemeral to you. I remember for a decade, they were like, hey, you know, we're going to go back. We're going to go back. So at some point, they were like, wow, these kids are pretty much speaking Swedish. They're pretty much Swedes. How did that happen? And then, you know, eventually like, they realized maybe, maybe we're stuck here kind of. But yeah, no, we got there. They were like, ah, oh, you know, since this is temporary, they got us like these student dorms. There's a small little dorm, one bed. My dad took the bed and you have a bathroom, but then you have shared kitchen. And then there's just a bunch of kids, right? 18 year olds in college who live there. And then you have this family with, you know, a family of four. And, you know, and we have a kid that's four or five years old. That's me running around, like breaking stuff. So we got to, people would find out like, this is a crazy kid running around. He just destroyed, demolished the TV in the shared room. 
So he evicted us. So we got like evicted like four times, but we kept like hopping around from one student dorm to another for a few years. Wow. And how long were you there for? 10 years in Sweden? No, I, I was there until I was like in my 30s. Basically, I grew up my whole life. I've been in Sweden all my life, except 10 years ago, I came here. Like you did your whole education there. Yeah. What did you get? Your undergrad, your MBA and your PhD all in Sweden? Correct. Do you ever go back there? Occasionally, yeah. Happens. Don't love it. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily, yeah. Can I ask you an honest question? Yeah. Do you try and disassociate yourself from your childhood as much as possible? No, not necessarily. What's the internal state? Is it fond? No. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of changes that happened all the time. But, you know, I had my computer and I did my programming on it. And that was like kind of my thing. And uh, that's where I would escape and do, you know, I could code and learn programming and stuff like that. So I was always into that. So that was kind of my... Safe space away from the world? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And you could just go and nerd out. Yeah. And eventually BBS has showed up and you could not connect to the internet. And I was like working with people in the US. So I was up until like 4 or 5 a.m. every night. I was on US time zone, basically. I grew up basically in US time zone. So yeah, then you connected to this whole world universe of people around the world that are like amazing programmers and hackers and whatnot. So you're like in this whole other cyberspace. Totally. And this is like in the 80s or 90s, right? It's like before everyone else is. So then it doesn't matter like what's going on around you. Is it surreal? Like what did you think of America when you were basically becoming Americanized. You'd never been here before, right? Yeah. What did you think of this place? Uh, my dream was to come here to LA and work for a gaming company. Go to Zynga or EA or something. It was electronic arts for me. Yeah. I wanted to work for EA and uh, develop games. Yeah. And in high school, finally, someone said, hey, you can come here, you'll get like 70 or 60K. And I was like, I'm set, I'm doing it. I'm, you know, but yeah. the you know, Persian parents are like, no, 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 you gotta go to school. You gotta get education. You gotta get a PhD. And blah, so you blah, spent blah. another whatever good shift in Sweden getting your yeah, education. Yeah, probably another 10 years, yeah. Yeah, are you kidding me? A Persian parent letting you go make games in America? Exactly. Yeah, forget about I, I it. I felt like life is over when I said no to that. I was like, it's game over. I, I got the thing I wanted. Finally, my dream come true. And, and my parents just destroyed it. I don't like the word surreal because it doesn't feel descriptive enough to me, but we're in the penthouse suite in San Francisco, basically. Like you're looking out over the entire city. It's stunning. This is a $40 billion company. You have more money than Iran, basically, at this point. Like it doesn't matter. How does that feel knowing what nothing actually feels like? Like, does, How does it, I'm not even saying the money necessarily, but just like living this type of life now, knowing how privileged we are relative to what that was. Yeah. How do you relate to that? Well, I'm always just ready for like, you know, any given moment, everything Disaster. can be taken away. Everything can get removed, right? In one year, this is a little bit exaggerated, but I wouldn't be shocked if this place gets bombed and we all have to leave the United States and we all have to go to China or somewhere else. That happens. That's what happened to me as a kid. You know, those things happen. Yeah. You go to a foreign country, you have to learn the language, you have to start all over and you got to do that. And yeah, that's how the world is. And I think we're kind of privileged anyway. Like hundreds of years ago, that's like the norm. Totally. Like wars, world wars, famine. It was the norm. A few thousand years before that is literally just, you know, running around in the jungles, getting killed and try to survive and find food. So I think we're super, super privileged here. hundred percent. In your personal life, are there ways that that rears its ugly head? Are there ways where I can see how it could be channeled in a healthy way, especially yeah. as a CEO? Yeah. I just wonder personally, does it yeah. also show up? Yeah, of course. How? So, well, I mean, I'm like constantly like push, 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 you know, everything like, yeah, at home, right? It's like with wife, kids, everything, right? They have to constantly like chill, like just calm down, <laughs> like just take a deep breath. Everything doesn't need to be like maxed out and you don't need to plan for the worst. Just chill out, just relax, just, yeah. you know, enjoy the moment. But you know, you're just wired a certain way, right? Has having a family chilled you out at all? No, not really. <laughs> 
It's weird because like, do you want to be chilled out? Like, it's just who you are. I don't know. Like, it's just so core to who you are. Like, you can't like erase part of your DNA in that no. way. Yeah. I was always this way, honestly, way before Databricks. You were, right? Yeah, for sure. One thing that surprised me is you have this aura about you. I'm not really sure how to explain it, but even when we were on Zoom, and people have told me this in the past, but there's this very presidential feeling that you get where you command a presence. And it's funny because I was watching a bunch of videos of you over time, and you weren't always this way. The one that's the most striking to me is in 2018, you were on stage with Mark Andreessen Mm -hmm. at, uh, I think, a Databricks conference or something. Right. You still had some hair, like you weren't like this Avengers character at that point, you know, like you didn't have the same level of authority and confidence that I feel from you now. Do you disagree with that? Or do you think that's evolved over time? Do you think you've learned to take on more of the like CEO stature over time? I'm curious. I actually think I've humbled over the years, to be honest. I think I've like humbled down. Like when you start a company in the very beginning and it's going well and all that, it might get to your head. And you might say things that are stupid that you then later regret. And you say, well, I was not particularly humble or chill out. Right? Yeah. And I think, no, over the, over the years, I've actually, I think I've, I didn't know that. That's interesting. No, no, it's not that. like a, maybe it's not, you're right. It's I'm actually not, not a humility thing. It's more yeah. of just like a general presence in the room. It's very hard to describe. And only few people, I've done a hundred, this is 110-ish episodes of some pretty cool people. It's very hard. It's not like a tangible thing. It's something mm-hmm. intangible. It's just mm-hmm. a presence. It's just an aura. Yeah. Anyway, I was just wondering how that's evolved over time. I'm not aware of it, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Well, Actually, over the years, I do think I've become more humble. How I view the world and the job and so on, you become more aware. Things were moving so fast in the beginning when Databricks was sort of growing. It's just so fast, you didn't have a chance to see what's going on around you. Yeah. You know, I think last couple of years, I've had more time to reflect. Yeah. Uh, And maybe that's the family thing. Maybe, Maybe you are right. Maybe, you know, having a child and all that kind of stuff makes you reflect life more and reflect things and uh, tell me if I'm wrong here but like your time is very important to you and you probably get less and less of it but as the years go on and priorities need to be stack ranked how old are your kids three years and six okay, months so like so during during data breaks. yes this is a weird question but like were you nervous that you weren't going to have time for yeah. all the kids meaning the work kid yeah, and the, exactly. you know and then the real kids absolutely yeah because I was working insane hours right and I was like well you know is it even possible? Like maybe I'll just not be able to make it work. Like maybe the equation just won't, it just falls apart. And? No, you just reprioritize, right? You just reprioritize. Anyway, the company's 2,000 people or 1,000 people or 5,000 people. It doesn't matter if you have three hours more or less. That's not going to be the thing that makes you be able to go from 1,000 people to 2,000 people. And if it is, it's not going to help you go to 3,000 people or four or five or, or if we take revenue or whatever metric you want to take. Those few hours is not the differentiating factor in being able to do the job. With your kids, do you get nervous that they're going to have such a cushy upbringing in the sense that it's obviously very different from yours? And I don't think anyone would want the exact childhood that you had in the same way that you had it, especially in a war-torn country. But do you ever get nervous now that they, for lack of a better term, like won't have grit? Yeah. Yeah. No, for the second kid, maybe. The first kid, I'm not so worried. He went through a lot of, he, he was diagnosed with cancer early on and went through a lot of you know, surgeries and chemotherapy and radio and all that for a year. So he's been through a lot. Maybe he doesn't remember it. So maybe he'll be spoiled. Is he okay now? I think so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. And how did that change your perspective? Did that do anything for you? Yeah. These are the things that kind of maybe that I'm going to say, you know, makes you more humble is you start valuing things maybe in life, things that you have. It's not just a constant compete, 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 you know, run the company. Like it's a very competitive 
job, right? Databricks, you know, against the competition, the markets, growing the targets. It's kind of gets you to like realize that life is fragile, even from the beginning. I think what those things do for me is I'm a control freak. I like to know the inputs to everything. And I've always been that way. And I think it comes from a place of when you have chaos early on in your life, your default state is to go to control, right? So I was with the Splunk CEO. He used to move like every year to a new city. And the first thing that he did every time he would get into a new bedroom is organize his room the exact same way, no matter what, to create order out of this chaos. And I think what ends up happening when something tragic like what happened with your son ends up happened is you realize you do not have control. It's just so helpless. You just can't help it. And I think there's something very humbling about that feeling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that gives a really good perspective, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you try to do your best, right? You, you try to read all the papers, see what can you do. Yeah. Uh, and then you realize, okay, maybe you can't be the expert on this one. But then you realize, okay, we could have two doctors or three doctors. Yeah see him independently and evaluate him. And then you can match the results and you start doing that and you know, you do everything you can. And this was during COVID also before vaccines. So everybody was freaked out. Terrifying and, you know, time yeah, in your life, yeah, huh? Yeah. And the business was exploding. Well, actually, you know, 2020 was a rough year right. for everyone, right? And we all thought that the whole economy is going to collapse, right? I mean, most people thought, you know, that there's going to be a complete collapse. It's kind of this recession that people are talking about now came two years later. We all th- thought it would come in March, April, or whatever it was in 2020. So that was going on, and then there was no vaccines, and then people were freaked out in the hospitals where you want to you know, get treatment and so on. And then at the same time, this was going on. So yeah, and it's my first kid, so that was a rough year. When you needed space from the world, did you go code? What would you do when, when in that moment when everything felt like you had no control? Did you go back to your default state of just getting behind the keyboard and coding? What were you doing? Honestly, I try to go for runs as much as possible. Just, okay. just run or exercise as much as possible. How far do you run? What's your run and what's your running? I right don't now? run that, that far. You know, I try to do three, four uh, miles. You're in good max. shape. Can I rewind a little bit before yeah. I get too far into the Databricks thing? You get your PhD in Sweden. Yep. How old were you? I was probably 22 or 23 when I started. And then I finished in four years, in just slightly less than four years. Isn't that really young? Yeah, I think I had kind of record fast like, at that university. Yeah, and I actually didn't know time. that, but I say that because my mom and stepdad have their PhDs, respectively, in chemistry and biology. And I don't think they got it till they were 32 or something. And I thought that was, maybe they were slow, but I thought that's pretty average. Yeah, and I worked extremely You're hard. You're 24? I finished my PhD, I was probably 28, 27 or something like that. You're like the fastest person to ever finish a PhD. No, not that. I don't know if I was the fastest, but it's very short for that university, like under four years. People would typically take five, six, seven years. But I worked my butt off. Like I've never worked that hard my whole life. Even now? Yeah, nothing. Why? Why were you doing it? Why for a PhD then? I don't know. I used to do two shifts going in the morning and a second shift until 2, 3 a.m. every day. You're basically doubling the course load. Yeah, I was doing so much that I actually finally collapsed, you know, in 2006. What do you mean? I always thought, you know, people who have like psychological issues, it's just in your head. My ancestors from Iran. It's so Persian. You, you know, <laughs> they work, work like hundreds of hours a week and they're fine and they do it until they die. You know, this stuff, mental health, so on, that's not real. But in 2006, suddenly I started having panic attacks, like real panic attacks. And I think I ignored a couple of them. And then I think the third one that I had, I just flat out passed out and I was out for 20 minutes. I was just kind of gone. And then I went through a 
almost like a PTSD from it, that what's going on? Like I'm not in control anymore. So that was extremely humbling. And that was in 2006. I just worked myself to death. That's what happened. Like I just pushed myself so hard, the kind of body just gave in. So I would have like a pulse of 180 or 190 and constant sweating and passing out and stuff like that. So yeah, so I worked very hard for the PhD. I don't, I don't work as hard here. No kidding, dude. Yeah. Ariana Huffington, do you know the story? No. She obviously started the Huffington Post yep. and then she was in a hotel room with her daughter and she was working herself literally to the bone, collapsed in the hotel room, hit her head, went to the hospital. She's now late 60s, early 70s. Sorry, Ariana, if you're listening and I over overshot the age, but she started a company again. She yeah. started another startup called Thrive Global yeah. that helps with this exact thing of yeah. like micro steps to help you chill, basically. Yeah. It's really inspirational. She started another startup, 70 yeah. years old, yeah. because of this exact same feeling of, I can't believe I just worked myself so hard. Yeah. And there was not even signals that I felt right. that it was happening. That's the scary thing. Yeah. You don't even feel the come up. Your body is just like, nope, like blocking it in because this is the goal and then blocking it out and then boom. Well, the thing is you're in control, right? So I'm working hard because I want to work hard. If it changes and I don't feel great, then I'll stop working. But this is someone else taking control of your body and just taking it over and just like pressing a red button and then break glass. And then suddenly it's like the body's shutting down and you're like kind of gone. So yeah, it was super scary. It took a while for me to even get back to walking in public or even getting in a bus. I was, I was- Oh, it really freaked you out. Well, you think you lost control of your body, right? Like, how do I know I'm not gonna just start screaming right now or do something crazy? I don't know. It's, you, I'm not in control anymore, right? I have, these panic attacks are happening to me. I don't control them. They just come to you. So, you know, it took a long while to like get back and also figure out how to avoid it in the future. And when was the last time you've had one? 2006. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good for I, you. Yeah. Uh, after the last one that happened, I think I cracked the code on how to avoid it. What's the code? Do you have a code? My biggest enemy is me. I can completely destroy myself. So I just have to keep that in check. And I kind of know the warning signs when they start coming. And at that point, they just have to like completely shut off and take a step back and take a break or, you know, do something else and make sure that I don't get into that mode. And I imagine it's generally speaking, all work related, working too hard. Like, is that usually how it starts to show up? When you psychologically feel like it's life and death, literally, and you start focusing on it so much and it becomes like, gotta happen or the world ends. When that kind of becomes a really strong sort of motivator and you keep feeling it, you start feeling, okay, it's almost destructive. You kind of have to just take a break, do something else and get yourself out of it and get some perspective. Once you get perspective, you realize actually that thing didn't actually matter that much, right? I mean, the thing I almost died for in 2006 for my PhD is totally useless. Nobody cares about <laughs> it. It's matter. like some PhD that no one will read. No one cares about. Certainly didn't teach you anything about this job. No, didn't. Yeah. It just taught you the value of learning how to work. Yeah. You were taught how to work. And I go back to the control thing. Like, I think it's really scary with someone, I imagine similar to me, like we love controlling things to like all of a sudden, there's just a lot of humility and like you can't control your own body. Yeah. There's a lot of humility in that. Yes. My mom always complains to me because I was making money right out of school. Like I went and got a job. She didn't start making money until her PhD was over at like 32, 33 years old. It takes you a while to start accumulating wealth, especially if it took you till 32 to start making your first paycheck. By the way, it's not like she's making six figures when she gets off, gets out into the world. Was it weird for you having made pretty decent money as like a little kid and then re-registering for this school thing somewhat against your will? I don't know. Was that a weird thing? Like, wait a second, I'm not making money right now. I'm working towards this goal that like I'm not even that fired up on. Did that even cross your mind? I was never really motivated by school for this reason. 
I felt like it was forced on me. And in college, I had my startup on the side and I was writing software for the government, for companies and so on. And yeah, I was making a lot of money all the time. Like I would loan money to my friends and stuff like, you know, it's like, so why am I even doing this thing? But you know how it is. It's a, it's a complete failure in a Persian family if you if you don't get that college degree, right? Change your last name. Right, <laughs> yeah. And both parents are doctors and so on. Like you're, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? So I had to finish. There was no other option. But you know, it was not fun and I was not good at it and I didn't do well and I really sucked at it. I had 70% absence in high school because I was up until 4 a.m., right? Because I was on these programming and stuff. So I didn't get into a good school, an undergrad, like really low, low ranked school. And even there, I didn't enjoy it. You know, I was coding all the time. And did something switch for you? I asked because of the dedication that you had towards your PhD. Yeah. Or did you just accept that this is something you're going to do and you have to get through it as fast as possible to get on with your life? I think what happened is I had to move to a different city far away from home because I didn't get into a good school, right? So I had to go in the far north of Sweden. <laughs> you know, it's cold there, isolated from everything else. And you immediately grow up in like a matter of three, four months. What happens is, okay, now you have to buy your own groceries. You have to do your own laundry. You have to take care of yourself. And I remember walking into a supermarket and thinking, wow, milk is like $2 or something. Do I really need milk? Maybe I don't need it. Do I have to pay money for it? It's not just in the fridge. And you start realizing you're your own boss now. You're not doing this for anyone else. So I think a couple of years in, maybe a year or two in to college, it switched in my head. That, okay, I, I do whatever I want now. And so then I started actually taking it seriously and I became extremely obsessed by academia, the coursework. So then suddenly I was applying that kind of intensity to my education. So I, I did like double degree at the same time and like went for the PhD and the MBA and all of that. And you, know. you did it all. Yeah. Then it switched. Yeah. And then you came to America and you still weren't done with education, right? You still wanted to keep going. I want to stay in academia, right? We yeah. considered businesses the dark side, making money and stuff like that. Not interesting. You want to further mankind and knowledge and expand mm-hmm. the universe of knowledge. So mm-hmm. that, that's like the world I lived in. Publishing yeah, the, papers, the closest research. we're allowed to get to business is law. Lawyers are okay. That's about the line that Persians are allowed to go in terms of acceptability yeah. in, the, in, the, in exactly. the world. And so how old were you when you moved to the States? I had probably just turned 30 or so. And is this your first time in America? No, I'd visited before. You had. And yeah. you, where, did you come straight to the Bay Area? So here's what happened. That year when I had that panic attack in 2006, and I was like, there's this professor at Stanford who was at HP, Bernardo Huberman, kind of well-known in his field, said, hey, why don't you come to the U.S. and chill out and enjoy the California <laughs> sun? Out, yeah. And you can just work on your PhD thesis here and you need a break anyway and like just clear your mind. So I came to the U.S. in 2006 and I lived in Palo Alto and sort of visited Stanford and HP labs where I worked, did this sort of internship. So then I actually didn't like it here. And I was like, I'm never moving to the U.S. It's not what I thought. The EA no dream kidding. was wrong. It's all highways, cars, Stanford Mall, $30 to just buy a pair of socks, not worth it. I don't like it. So I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna move here. But then there was this one research presentation that I actually drove into UC Berkeley and I saw, and I just loved Berkeley. I was like, wow, this is like Europe. This, and this is awesome. And the university is amazing. And the research is fantastic. So I said, okay, if, there's, if I ever come to the United States, it kind of would be on my bucket list to go to UC Berkeley. That I would do. And then did you go back to Sweden and then came back to Berkeley ultimately? Yeah, 2009 later. And you got a, I don't know, was it a professorship? How do you say that? Did you, did no, I took, I had a professorship in Sweden. I started yeah. a, sort of as an assistant professor in Sweden, but I kept applying for coming here to the US and then finally got a shot to come here one year just to visit and do research here. And I loved it. It was amazing. It was also a really amazing time for the technology space, cloud oh, yeah. and all that. Yeah. 2000 and what? Nine. Dude. 
Yeah, it was the perfect gold, the timing. golden era. Yeah, it was a golden era. That team at UC Berkeley kind of redefined research mm-hmm. in cloud computing. Like basically all the interesting, more or less research in cloud computing and the clouds taking over basically happened by that team at UC Berkeley that I was part of those years. So I was like a kid in a candy shop. Yeah, that was your mecca. And so one year in, what happens? You want to do another year? Yeah, I got to do another year. Have to do another year. So you figured out a way to do another year. And then they were like, hey, you should stay and here. So it was like, do another year, but just one more year. And then another year, and then another year. And, and how long, how many years did it end up being? All the way up to Databricks. In fact, when we started Databricks, I was not super interested in the startup. So I was actually the only out of the seven co-founders who was like, ah, I'll, I'll kind of do part-time and I'll stay at UC Berkeley because I love it. Like I, I love the research. We just keep publishing these papers. We're changing the world. Startups are a dime a dozen in Silicon Valley. Everybody has one and you know, it's, they die after one or two years. So I was still at UC Berkeley. And now the other six co-founders were- They hacking, were full-time. They were no. hacking away at the company. Yeah, they were like full-time. And I was the one that was like cruising in half-time, part-time. And what was the innovation from the research in Berkeley that then the rest of the co-founders started working on full-time vis-a-vis Databricks? You know, we invented so many things that were amazing, honestly. At the very beginning, we weren't even sure which one of them we were going to commercialize. That's cool. Like, there were, like, so many things. And, and there were, still, like, any shelfware still that we can go find and dig up, Look, dude? we did this thing called Mesos that all of Twitter was running on. And we decided to not commercialize that. Yeah, Mesosphere did that for us. Yeah, exactly. Days. And it was another one, like Tachyon, that became another startup. And then it was like, there was a whole slew of these that we were developing. And I was like, we're on a roll. We should just continue to do this research and change the world. I mean, it's amazing. But then the Spark opportunity seemed, at the time, it wasn't as big as the rest. But it seemed that that has the most potential because of the AI machine learning use cases. So let's do that startup. And we were actually just going to start really small. We were just going to raise 100 or 200K and just do this thing a little bit, like as a seed thing, and eventually we'll see where it goes. It wasn't supposed to be like all in, lots of funding, go, go, go. It was supposed to be like this little thing, but then Ben Horvitz changed that. What did he do? He somehow got the wind of that. These guys are pretty good, and they've built this thing. It potentially can crush this Hadoop thing that's super popular at the time. And he knew some of the founders, so he started talking to us. And we're like, sure, we'll take 200K and do a seed thing. He's like, no, I want to be on your board. I want to do this thing real. Over the years, I've gotten to know him really well. We're similar personalities, very similar. Like, I haven't actually seen anyone that's so similar in my life. And, you know, got the same intensity. And he came in and he said, no, 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 go, 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 go. And we said, well, give us 200K. And he said, "Uh, no, no, I'm going to be on the board. I said, sure, give us 200K. And he said, no, I want exclusive Series A rights. You know, I'm going to take a huge bet and we're going to go big. And we actually decided we're not going to go with him. You know, who, the, who does this guy think he is? He didn't write all this code and all these papers. So internally, we decided not to do it. But we went around the table and said, look, is there like a number that if he says that number, like the valuation of the company at the time? And I think we said, oh, well, you know, if, if he values this already at 20 million, because we don't have anything, that's pretty good. Then if someone else said, no, 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 let's go higher. Like, let's just say he has to value 30 or something like that. And Ben came in and he said, hey, I don't want to negotiate. I'm just going to give you one number. You can say no. Uh, 47 million. And that's it. And that, and we were immediately, yes. You <laughs> said uh, yes on the spot. Yeah, because it was higher than all the numbers that we had <laughs> internally, right? It was like a no-brainer. We were taking it. And that was your Series A. Yeah, yeah. And then at that point, was it obvious that you had to be, then become full-time at Databricks? No, I continued part-time. Are you serious? Yeah. And brief intermission for the audience listening, can you give a 30-second overview of what Databricks does? And maybe could you couch it in a customer? Yeah. We help companies take massive amounts of data that they have. Typically, it's customer data or how are you using their products or services, right? 
And we helped them do all kinds of things with that data. But in particular, in the cases that's really interesting, we helped them do machine learning and AI and predictions on that data. What does that mean? The coolest use case that I always quote is Regeneron used us and they found the genome responsible for chronic liver disease using AI. And they have actually a drug that targets that. So that was found using us. Rolls-Royce has these engines that are attached to planes. They have hundreds of sensors. They get the data from that. And they can exactly decide when to service an engine and when to replace it using all this AI that we have developed. And doing that, they're able to double the lifespan of those engines. If you apply for a credit card on your Apple card on your iPhone, the underwriting happens on Databricks. It can happen in less than five minutes. So you can get a credit card in less than five minutes. You can start spending stuff on your phone. Something that used to take days or weeks. Another side question, how special would it be if Databricks was used to help with your son's cancer, like to help find something that it would be a cure at some point. Yeah, I actually think they're using the technology for that, right? I mean, so his story is we actually did whole genome sequencing on him very early on, just because, you know, we wanted to know, you know, just good to have. And I did it on my second son as well. And we didn't actually expect any of this stuff. They just said, hey, we found a gene mutation, WT1, that increases his probability of getting a kidney cancer to 50%. And we started screening every three months. First screen was clean. Second screen, two centimeter tumor in the left kidney. And we caught it. He would be dead now if it wasn't for technology and whole genome sequencing and the kind of technology. Like, so Databricks and Spark is used for whole genome sequencing. So these Illumina machines spit out these genome strips, aligning them. That's a big data problem. And you Spark for that. As the fastest way to do that is to use our technology that we had developed at Berkeley back then. So yeah, it's kind of part of that stack. And it makes me emotional. That's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, so if we hadn't done this, he would have just been in pain a year later or so and we would have taken him in and it would have said it's all over his body. And he's got like six months to go and, you know, he would have died. This technology is going to change lives and it's going to continue doing that. And we can do amazing things with it in the next decade or so. We're in buzzword topia these days. Where is AI in its maturity life cycle? And it seems like one of the ways that people define maturity in this space is using the Turing test. Could you explain what that is and talk about where we are and just give me a sense of what's going on here? Well, first of all, it's hard to say where we are because we don't know how, you know, how, how far, far can, can you get. push it, yeah. right? But I think we're in the very, very early days. Significant strides has been made since 2011, I would say. 2011 was a pretty interesting year. And I think if you had asked me three, four years ago, we would have said that uh, you probably cannot. One thing that's very hard to do well is things that have to do with human language. It's very complicated. Like all this talk about universal grammars and so on to understand language. It's pretty complicated. It's actually very hard to teach a computer the grammar and come up with the rules. And then it's just, it will be terrible. So language is something we can't do well, period, I would have said three years ago. And then just in the last three years, these large language models have had major breakthroughs. And they basically are amazing. They can learn lots of languages. Once you teach a model a language, you teach the second language, it gets even better. And it gets better and better and better. And now translation and understanding the language has just completely been revolutionized. So the Turing test is, if you're talking to someone, could you determine if the person that you're talking to is a computer or is the human being? When you cannot do that in a certain amount of time, you've passed the Turing test. I think Alan Turing said it would take five minutes. You should. You only have five minutes to do that. I think we've already passed that. I think most people, if they talked to... Computer would have no idea. In five minutes, I don't think you could. Yeah, I think they could fool you in five minutes pretty easily. But actually. would most people in the world disagree with what you just said? I think anyone who's looked at these large language models 
Well, it's also a question, who are you going to beat, right? Are you going to beat me or... <laughs> me. A, a person <laughs> you I beat me. I don't so, know if you beat you. <laughs> so I was saying, I think you could beat the average right. person in the population yeah. easily. Yeah. Like the vast majority of the people in the population. would not, And if you told them, are you talking to a computer or you're talking to a human being? And you only have five minutes. But I think if you give it to me or someone who knows a little bit about this stuff and you give them more time, we know what questions to ask to really trip them up. So I think we're not quite there. That's scary, man. So I want to go back to the story. Series A drops the bag. Now all of a sudden you have a company, whether you like it or not. You're still working part-time. Yeah. What happens? What makes you then stop teaching and go into this business full-time? It happened when one of our co-founders, Matei, the genius WizKit co-founder, creator of Spark, he needed to write up his dissertation. Like he hadn't actually written it up. <laughs> so he needed to go back to Canada and write the dissertation. And he was largely running engineering at Databricks. So I think they took like half of engineering and said, you have to help him like run half of engineering. By the way, when I say half of engineering, I mean like five people. Right. So you have to run this team of five people. How uh, big is engineering today at Databricks? I think we passed thousand yeah, recently, okay. yeah. but that suddenly took way more time to get five people and manage them and make sure that everything is on track in the early days. And then before I knew it, time had eroded and I was spending very little time at Berkeley. And you were basically running engineering. Well, I mean, it was, became larger and larger portions of engineering. Right. Eventually, I said, take all of engineering. Yeah. And I loved that. That was like, I became obsessed by that. I loved running engineering. The switch flipped again for you into like your obsession then went away completely, wholeheartedly from education and school yeah. into this. Absolutely. I like this way more. And then it was on. Yes. So Series A, wasn't that kind of a romantic time? The expectations were there, but not all the way there. Like, wasn't it still kind of feeling like a bit of a science project for you guys? No, no. Or was it on? No, no. It was on. It was very difficult. Things were much rougher back then. It was much tougher then in some sense than now. And we had to work way harder. You know, it's like, are we winning or are we losing? Imagine you feel like we are losing. It's pretty much guaranteed we're going to lose because there's this huge tsunami of Hadoop, 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 money going to Hadoop vendors. And there's giant companies with thousands of employees that are just talking about it. You're 10 people in Berkeley sitting there in the city trying to get your word out. Maybe you get one article out, someone talking about you. You're not going to succeed. It's guaranteed you're not going to succeed. You're not going to be a successful company. So you're working on this thing that's basically not going to, it's going to probably fall. You know, it's probably going to die. So yeah, it was intense and it's really difficult. And anyone who runs a Series A or B or C company will tell you that. I was uh, <laughs> with Parker from Rippling. Mm-hmm. Someone asked the question, what advice would you give to all the aspiring founders in the audience? And he's like, look, I know people say this and it sounds trite at this point. Don't do it. <laughs> Just don't do it. Yeah. Like it is not fun. It is no joke. Yeah. And by the way, when we're at this point of rippling now or whatever, where it's a 10 plus billion dollar company it doesn't get easier. The stakes just get higher. Yeah. Your anxiety is just proportional to the expectations of the business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, feel? for sure. Yeah, For sure it's that way. But I felt like there was, I mean, I just think the challenges change yeah. over time. Yeah. But I think it was very, very difficult and it was very intense the few, first few years. It was a science project in the sense that we weren't trying to make money because we had no shot at making any money and our revenues were kind of non-existent. Yeah. But it was still a fight for getting the word out that what we're doing is interesting and it can... It's kind of game changing. So yeah, I think it was very, very difficult. I think it's, in a way, maybe it's easier for the company these days. The CEO job might be harder because of the pressures, 
And I think it's always this risk of any given day, your company might fall apart, right? That can happen to anyone. I mean, you could be GE and worth, you know, yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars and suddenly you're kind of gone. That can happen to any company. It's happened. The pressures are higher. The expectations are higher and so on. How long did it take you to get to like 10 customers or so? I think it happened early very quickly because you can find other startups. Right. You just sell also have. You just go to the Andreessen portfolio. Yeah. So you have a bunch of other startups. They have some funny money. Yeah. They're doing some funny stuff and they'll give you some money to do this and that. But then they'll send you an email a year later saying we, we shut sure. down our shop, you know. So 10 wasn't hard. But I think getting to like a million ARR was a big milestone for us. Yeah. And a million ARR is like in a loose measurement product market fit. That's when it's not friends and family anymore. Yeah. And it's not just the people in your first degree of network. Yes. Like you have to actually sell. Yeah. Like you have to figure out once you've built the product, like what does actual distribution look like? Yes. How painful was that? I was running product and engineering, so I wasn't actually on the go-to-market side, so I was kind of shielded a little bit. I was just working on making the most amazing product. It was easier then than now, because I could just focus on creating an amazing product. Whereas today you have thousands of thousands of customers with requests, there's trade-offs, there's money on the line. That was not the case. There's no customer. There's nobody who really, you know, a millionaire are sure, but you, know, you can pretty much build what you want to build. And actually, there's no customer feedback either, really. It really just someone on a white canvas painting whatever you want. So that was that. But then soon, like I remember, right, there around 3 million ARR stuff started getting really real. Because our core open source technology took off. And the whole world kind of took notice of Spark, Apache Spark, and started talking about it. They all started monetizing it, all these companies out there. Amazon. There was a company called Cloudera. There was a Hortonworks. It was, you know, many of these companies are more or less not around, but Amazon is, of course. Suddenly it became, hey, they're eating your lunch. What are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? You're like, well, look at how many downloads we have. Everybody's downloading our software. I'm like, yeah, what's your revenue? Like, and what's your target for the year? And what are you doing? And it's like, well, you know, we're going to hit 2 million. It's like, yeah, I think your competitors are making like hundreds of millions of dollars on your software. What are you doing? So that then this sort of intense chase for scaling the company came after that product market. And that was what, around like late 2013, early 2014? No, no, no. We were a million revenue, million and a half revenue in 15. Okay. At 15, we felt the pressure already. I was not the CEO, but 15, the pressure was on from the board. What are you doing with the numbers? You're not doing this right. So like intense pressure from the board. And then we were spending a lot of energy trying to figure out how do we actually scale the machine. And I think that was going on for 15 16, we did 13 million ARR. From like two. Three, I think. Yeah, yeah it was on. And yeah. when you say bored, was it just Ben? Ben and Pete Sonsini, but yeah, Ben was really dropping the F-bombs in every sentence <laughs> and really cranking up the volume, like just to a completely different level. Yeah. And at that point, NEA had already put the Series B yeah. in, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Pete and Ben were kind of tag teaming this, but Ben was definitely the one that was pounding the table. Like, And did Ben pound the table for you to be the CEO? Yeah, he did too, yeah. He did. After the fact, he's told people that, you know, who knew if it was going to really work out with him or not, you know. So we gave him that. We didn't give him the compensation for a CEO. And then we'll see if you can figure it out or not. Yeah, I've heard a little bit of like uh, backstory that maybe there was frustration that you're subbing in one academic for another. And yeah. maybe we've had enough of the academics that we could just get a real business person. in Exactly. Yeah. And they interviewed CEOs in the market, did uh, they? you know, without telling me, but I would find out from the current CEO. Like, oh, and that time. was the worst thing that they could have done because that pissed you off and it fired you up. Well, actually, we weren't sure. I wasn't sure that this company had any, could really make it yeah. in 15. So I was kind of going back and forth. Actually, I got the kind of opportunity to go back and be full-time professor at Berkeley at the time, and which was a big dream for me to come true in, in, 
it was around, I think, November 2015. There was no one else applying that year. So I was, it was pretty much a shoe in. So I could have, so I was kind of like, oh, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll do the other one. So I was going back and forth, which one do I want to do? Right. I was talking to one of your co-founders, Patrick, and he was saying that it was pretty obvious to everybody, the co-founding team, that you were the guy. The whole founding team wanted you to be the CEO, which is really cool. So January 2016, you joined. What are some of the first things that you did as CEO? Yeah, I mean, I had time to think and reflect this. I've been at the company, so like it's right. different from hiring an external CEO who doesn't know and has to learn mm-hmm. the company. There were kind of three pivots that happened pretty quickly. The first one was honestly to up-level the management team, was it number one. Number two was the sort of hardcore pivot and push towards enterprise sales motion, which I was not sure 100% about, but it kind of felt like, you know, we tried all this other stuff. Product-led growth didn't work. It sucked, right? We tried product-led growth. We did the whole open source thing. It's not working. So let's try something else. What do you have to lose? The board is pissed off. So let's just do it. So that was the second one. The third one was to figure out the strategy of what are you going to monetize in your stack? Are you just going to build open source software and feed these other companies that are just downloading it? Or are you going to actually have value add that's significant? Those were three big pivots. Mm-hmm. All three kind of paid off, but you know we weren't sure at the time. In some ways, did you feel like you had nothing to lose? Because you're like, God, like I'm the new CEO. Yeah. And some people don't even want me to be the CEO. Yeah. I'm not even sure I'm qualified to be the CEO. I don't even know if I want to really do this. <laughs> I Maybe might go I back to Berkeley. I literally thought to myself, I probably made the mistake of my life taking this job. You know, my whole life I wanted to be a professor. And now finally I got the shot to do it. And I picked this one instead. I probably the biggest mistake I ever made. <laughs> this fucking company. Yeah. Were you insecure? Yeah, I'm sure I was. Like, yeah. what, like, how hard were you working to compensate for any other feeling other than we got to make this work? Were you close Extra, to the P- double PhD? I had many getting close to that border and had to like go calm myself down. There was m- more regressions like that happening uh, around At that, that time, point. For sure, for sure. Because for it sure. was live or die. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, it I didn't mean, actually like, feel like live or die. It was. Well, it's kind of like, hey, this guy's a first, first time CEO. He's a PhD. He doesn't know what business, right? And he's like, never had a job before. And his company kind of sucks. I mean, they have, they're great academics, don't get me wrong. And their software is awesome. People love downloading it, but they're shitty business people. But to be fair, they're right. Like you weren't a business person at that point. At that point, you were generally speaking an academic. Yeah. So what did you do? How did you learn to be a business person? Like, how did you learn to be the CEO besides the obvious doing the job and figuring it out that way? First of all, I had an MBA. I had read the theory and all the books. Totally. And I'm stuff not back discrediting the, that. Yeah, no, 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 I had, I had the... You had the theoretical knowledge. Correct, correct. And I had this dream, actually, when I was young, when I was like 20 or so at university. I actually applied for a PhD in business degree at some point. And I actually kind of got into both. I just picked Can computer science. Can you do science. that? Well, yeah, in Sweden, they had that. and oh. But I got the better university that I got into, the top university, was computer science, so I picked that instead. Okay. But my dream was always in the beginning that maybe one day... You know, my parents are doctors. They heal people. I don't want to be a doctor, like deal with people because, you know, it's life and death. But it's really cool when you have these CEOs that come into companies that are sick and they heal them and they fix them. So that was kind of a dream of mine in my 20s. And that's actually one of the things that intrigued me, that it's kind of like you come in. These are big, complicated organizations, lots of people. We had hundreds of people. And you figure out how to crack the code. You have big impact. You can actually fix it. You can cure it. You can figure, diagnose it, give it the medicine it needs. So I was kind of intrigued by it. But yeah, I didn't know. There was one conversation I had with Ben that was very interesting. I was proud. This is, I think, my first one-on-one I had with Ben Horowitz as a CEO. And I told him that the exec team needs up-leveling, but I'm going to coach them and fix it. And, so, and he just laughed and said, how are you going to coach them? 
how are you going to coach them? And I said, well, I mean, you know, I'm going to show them how it's done, right? And he said, so you, you know how to do sales better than the sales guy? And you know better than the marketing guy how to do marketing? And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can do that better than them. And it's like, okay, so then they must really suck. So why don't you just, because <laughs> you've never done that before. And he's like, look, you need to get executive leverage. And I knew because I had read all the books at the time. So I knew that he's talking about managerial leverage. Uh-huh. You know, this is Andy Grove, uh-huh. high output management. Uh-huh. So I knew what he was, I had read all the books. And he's like, yeah, you need to get someone that makes you look better. If your job is to fix them, you're already failing. Your job is to get people that make you look amazing. And they say, Ali's a great business guy. So I think that was kind of a pivotal moment. And I kind of, after that one-on-one, I walked out, I was kind of humbled and felt like he had just insulted me. But I, I remember that day thinking, this is probably the best one-on-one I've ever had with anyone. Like it was very eye-opening. He's 100% right. I got my marching orders. I know what I need to do. Did you admire any CEOs at the time that you wanted to go talk to to learn what you thought was a great job at CEO? I'm not sure I had any sort of on the top of my list. The next couple of years, I did spend time trying to meet all the best marketing people, all the best salespeople, as many CEOs that I could find that were ahead of us, mm-hmm. ahead of the game, learn from them. What are they doing? How are they doing it? So yeah, I did spend a lot of time actually. And I read as many books and as many blogs and as many, you know, yeah. uh, I talked to people. I talked to a lot of, the, when I was doing my exec searches for each of the roles, as I was up leveling the exec team, you do a search for marketing, you do a search. So then I would make sure that for each of these searches, I also get a shot to just meet the top marketing person the in the person. industry. So you yeah. know what world-class looks like. Yeah. And I'll just interview them and I'll learn from them. So That's yeah. your benchmark. Yeah. And then you start seeing patterns very quickly. Yeah. Talk to the top marketing people. You talk to the top engineering people. You interview 10 or 20 of them you'll see the same pattern kind of repeating itself. Of yeah. Like, okay, this is the gist of what they're doing and yeah. this is what good looks like. Whereas some of these kind of are probably clueless or they don't know. You learn very quickly actually what great looks like. Yeah, yeah. I Trust me, that's, you should have started a podcast then. You don't have heroes, do you? You've never really had heroes. No. It's interesting because actually I had heroes when I was a little kid and every time I had a hero, somehow, some way, I would just find some opportunity to be disappointed. And even today, like, all of the business people that I get to interview, generally speaking, they were my heroes. And I have found over time that there are heroic parts of them that I really admire, that I want to steal, you know, but like really small slivers. Yeah. I don't know if that resonates at all with you, but that's how it felt for me. Yeah. I mean, look, it's all human beings, right? They might be special and they got somewhere, but it's the... Yeah, there's a little bit of emperor has no clothes kind of going on with everyone, I guess. Isn't it funny now becoming the CEO of $40 billion Databricks that you realize that like when you talk to all these CEOs, most of them actually don't know what they're doing. Like they don't, they're not going to be able to teach you how to run Databricks. No. It's just so unique. Yeah. And you know, there's a huge luck element for all of us. There's so many smart people that are so good, that work so hard, that are so much better than any one of us. Take any company. Uh, yet they're not there. They didn't get to be the person that runs these companies or is super successful, even in research or whatever. There's so many people that are good. And just, so I think there's a huge luck element. So the company's raised how much to date? I have it here. Good. Three and a half billion. Yes. Over 11 rounds, I think. 10 or 11 rounds. But two and a half billion of it was last year. Two and a half billion of it last year. And the last round was one billion. Is that right? Yeah, or maybe one and a half. Yeah. I've heard you say that it was easier to raise billions of dollars than it Absolutely. was the earlier rounds? Absolutely. The easiest money raised was the two and a half billion dollars last year's. In the very early years, we would show all this graph, try to explain our very complicated technology. And we show all these download graphs and everyone would say, well, what's your revenue? What's this? And they would scrutinize everything out of our metrics. And then last year, it was just crazy. It was the easiest. I actually had an argument with my CFO when we raised the first billion. 
I was like, we got to prepare. We got to make our decks. We got to do the data room. And he said, I can just get a billion like next week at this valuation. I was like, it doesn't work like that. I've raised all this money for this company. I don't know where you come from, but all the money at Databricks, I've been in every round. It's very hard. You have to do your homework. You have to, we have to practice this. Like we got to do this. We got to go the whole kind of kill ourselves to get there. I was like, ah, oh, trust me. I the CFO said that. Yeah. My CFO Dave said, I got to get a term sheet by Tuesday. I was like, that's not how it works. Trust me. Okay. I know this space. Of that. And by Tuesday he had a term sheet. At 40 billion. I think the first one was maybe 28 billion. Yeah. He, he just made a couple calls and it was not hard. I go back to Parker from Rippling. Have you guys met before? No. Do you know who he is? Yeah. Talk about like lowest common denominator of what great looks like in each function. You both have this level of intensity that, by the way, the best I've ever seen all have, where it is a level of detail. So it's obviously like yeah. the benefits and payroll company, yeah. right? He approves every expense report at the entire company today, still. Yeah. He is the only admin yeah. for all benefits and payroll at the entire company. It's a thousand plus person company. Yeah. Because he's so keen yeah. on being in the details. Isn't yeah. that cool? Yeah, anyway, pretty cool, yeah. I, I feel like you would definitely do something like that. I do not do that for expenses, <laughs> but I approved every hire up until like a year ago. Every until hire. a year ago? Yeah. yeah. So, so you were thousands of people and you're yeah. still approving every hire? Every hire. And even now I approve all the hires above a certain level, which is the level is set pretty low. So what do you mean approve? Like you look at the profile and you say I look say at the yeah package and I push back, yeah. You look at the package and you push, are you serious? Yeah. How much are you pushing back versus giving an auto green light to? Oh, I push back all the time. They know. Are you kidding? No, I look, I'll say, hey, you know, what's so special about this profile? If I was sitting in an interview right now and the tables were turned, what's the first thing that you would ask me? Like, well, it depends the... on what role, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, depends on which function. Is it manager or did I see? Let's say I was interviewing for Andy's job. I was the president of Databricks. Number one thing, how do you hire? Yeah, okay. I would push you on how well. How deep would you push me? You know, I'll ask you, give me the names of the people. Let's look at the profiles of who you hired in your career. How did you hire them? Where did you hire them? What did you see in the CV at that time? Where did they come from? What are the mistakes you made? And then I'll go back toward them. So I'll go figure out who you said, and I'll go check. Is this true? Did he actually hire this person? Or were they already there? What did he see in this profile? I go ask the person if I can. Did he really hire you? What did he do? Like, how was he as a boss? So on. I'll go all the way down to the atoms. But I would focus on hiring because for us, we're a growing company and it's the quality of the people we hire is very important. As we're growing so fast, keeping the culture intact is one of the top goals. So That's amazing. It doesn't surprise me. The point that I was making on Parker around fundraising was someone asked him like, hey, I heard you're a great fundraiser. And he goes, I got to be honest, I'm not that great of a fundraiser. The best advice someone gave me early on in my career was build a company worthy of the valuation that you want. That's the secret to fundraising. He's like, it's not that complicated. It's hard because then you actually have to have the stuff. But outside of that, let the market speak for the value of the company. Kind of get out of the way at that point. I think it only works when you're in the like, Yeah, the I disagree point. with that. Tell me why. Well, I think it's, I know a lot of great companies that couldn't race because they can't present well. They don't know how to make the argument. And there's a, when you're a VC, there's a pattern match that you do. But you pattern match certain, you see, and you're comparing them, right? You're A-B testing all these people that are coming and presenting to you. I think it matters how you present, what you present, the charisma, the story, you know, you got to get that right. And you can do much better with that, or you can do much worse, depending on. So I think it matters. Of course, he's right that you need a great company yeah. and with a really extremely crappy company. But there are these people that raise huge tons of money and they don't even have good companies. Yeah, but how much of that do you think is a function of the times? Do you think you go to your CFO in today's market and raise the same round? Well, look, Databricks is a large company with you know over a billion ARR. The metrics will speak for themselves and they will analyze it. So yeah. at this scale, yeah. it's a little bit different. But when you're Series A or Seed, you don't have anything. No, no. And I think what his point was is like when you're more mature. Yeah. Like but when to get there, you have to do all those early rounds. Agreed. And you must have been good at it to raise those. And if you weren't, you never got there. Yeah. 
Now, granted, you go back to the thing about like first time versus second time CEOs and stuff like there's pattern matching that's already happening yeah. in that person's profile where you were on the negative, the downside of that. Because we we were, screwed up some fundraisers in the early days. Did you? Yeah, big, big screw ups. Yeah. How so? You know, we weren't like buttoned up. We didn't have a good pitch. We didn't know how to answer the questions. You're answering the questions of what I think is important yeah. for our company, but the VC has a different, they're pattern matching against something else. Yeah. And for us, I think often they were pattern matching. Do you have the business acumen and do you have the business leadership? Yeah. And we were obsessed by, look, look at this technology, how this works. It's so superior you to other technologists. Technology. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And they were probably in the early days evaluating. So, you know, we had a rough time raising. Going back to the interview thing, I think you're like that with everything. Maybe yes. I'm wrong, but I, su- I right. suspect you are. How do you get into that level of detail without just pissing everybody off? It's just like, Ali, are you kidding me? These are pretty competent people. Maybe not if I'm interviewing with you, but like your executive team and stuff. Have you had to learn over time how to not be like, dude, <laughs> I don't need helicopter dad over here. Well, I mean, number one is you're not here to win a popularity contest. You're here to win and make the company win and they'll benefit everybody in the company. I think if you're just trying to do the thing that makes you popular, it's bad. At least that's not what I'm trying to do with Databricks. So that's one. So a little bit, it is what it is. You know, if they don't like it, it's, I mean, what can you do? Like you got to do what you got to do to make this company succeed and the employees succeed. Number two, this is one of my execs told me. He had worked for someone that's really, really hard to work for. And I said, hey, you know, it's, you're working for me. It's, it's the same, right? And he said, no, you're different. And I said, why? And he said, well, you make these deposits from time to time. I get these attaboys and there is this encouragement. So then that helps when you're doing your big withdrawals. <laughs> What's a big withdrawal look like? Can you give me an example of a withdrawal? When something is not being done well, when your founder CEO of a company feels like it's your baby, right? It feels like I literally, I have two sons. I feel the company is one of my three babies. So if someone hurts your kid, how do you feel about that? If someone, if you found out that the teacher's school kicked your kid in the face, you're furious, right? Like you're out of, you go crazy. That's how I feel about Databricks. And so you get very sort of emotional about it. You got to temper that. But yeah, it's, you'll be very upset about it. I have a feeling you have a hard time putting deposits in. Do you have to be very intentional about it? I make an effort to do it. Look, first of all, I don't know. So for all I know, maybe they all hate me and think I'm yeah, like, yeah. You know, a maniac and there's zero deposits. But I try to make as many deposits as I can. I try to go out of my way. To do make deposits. Yeah, I do. If you talk to them, they might say, well, that's very rare and they're far in between and they're small deposits. But from where I stand, how I am, my personality and who I am, I really try to go out of my way to do lots of deposits. In some respect, you're self-selecting for a certain type of person who wants to be the best version of themselves and fulfill their potential in the most meaningful way. And so I do think that in some weird way, one of the deposits that you're putting in all the time is that no one would ever mistake you for not caring. Yeah. And so I think that one way that you can show that you care is by raising the bar for yourself and others at all times. And I think that's one of the most meaningful deposits that anyone could ever feel as long as they truly want to be great. Yeah. If you're easily offending people, then I bet you they're not the right person for this type of culture here. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, in fact, I kind of go out of my way in interviews to not make any deposits, to just be doing withdrawals, like almost to an extreme especially if I'm worried that the candidate actually is not going to kind of, that we're going to have an issue here. So to get them to self-select out at the very, at the interview process. But then what if you actually have the best candidate possible for the role? They're don't not you, the best if they can't handle the. But don't you feel a little bit of pressure to like sell, to help show them the opportunity that could be? Depends on the candidate. If it is a candidate that I'm worried, 
doesn't have the competitive nature in them that they don't want to come here and really make this company win, that that's not the best candidate for his company. And then it's better that they self-select out in the interview process. How much time do you spend on hiring? A lot. Even today, if you were to break down your calendar in a given week, what percentage do you think is spent on some version of hiring? 30, 40%. I don't know. It's pretty high. It's high. Yeah. I mean, we're doubling every year. All the departments are hiring and these are very important hires. It's one of the most high leverage things I can do for this company, right? Or put me aside, it's one of the most high leverage thing you can do is hire the right person versus the wrong person. The wrong hire in a critical role costs you two years, literally. And what does that do to a function that's doubling every year? for that function, for that responsibility, that person. You lose two years. Last one, and then I got to wrap this up, I think. Can you tell me what it actually means to have a culture of truth-seeking? I think it's circling around a lot of the things that we're talking about. Yeah, that's an important culture principle for us. We started actually calling that let the data decide and be data-driven, but we changed that recently to be truth-seeking. The reason most people were weaponizing data. Go get me more data on this. If you want to stall a decision, you can ask for more data, and it's more easily weaponized. I think what happens in large companies is that the truth gets sacrificed and there's so much of the information that gets cleaned up and presented to the execs to present good news. Things are going well. We did well here. It's awesome. Like the team has done a great job. It's fantastic. It makes it hard to deal with the problems that you have. As the company gets bigger and bigger, you're basically getting a very distorted view of reality at the top. And you also get these tussles between the departments, like marketing, fighting sales, fighting engineering. You see it in the big companies. They all have that, right? Sometimes I feel like some of these departments hate each other more inside a company than they hate their competitor. And when you double click on how those conflicts are going down at these big corporations, and I had some inspirations of working with some big companies that I kind of saw it up, up front, you see that the truth is the first thing that gets sacrificed. When you get these fractions, and you see it in society and politics as well, it's us against them. The truth actually doesn't matter. If they said it, we don't like it, right? Or we said it, oh, that's okay then. I actually liked it then. That's good. Oh, I thought they said it. Truth doesn't matter. It's us against them and can we win over them or not? And we do everything we can do in our power to destroy them and so on. You start getting silos of that building up inside the company. Instead of saying, hey, can we just focus on what's the best thing? What's the best thing for the customers? What's the best thing for the company here? How do we do that? Instead of getting into this tussle, it's like, oh, okay, actually, it's this department. This leader doesn't like that department. They're always fighting over this thing. So that's why it's so important. Let's just talk about the truth and let's seek it. And if we're wrong or if it doesn't help us, if it doesn't help this department or this person, let's be honest about it. And it applies to me too. So I might say, this is very strategic. This is the most important thing in the company. Then I'm wrong. Let's figure that out. I will admit it to the company and I will say, look, that was a bad strategy. I launched it. It's not going to work. Let's change course and let's do as fast as we can. And if we can do that really, really fast, if we can detect bad decisions and things that are going wrong and admit them and quickly pivot, then actually that's a competitive advantage in itself. So that's what truth-seeking is about. So let's just, just be as truth-seeking as possible and just look at the data and just not be opinionated about it. Look, I'm really grateful to spend the time with you. Uh, it's really special. It's not surprising to hear folks like Ben Horowitz say you're the best CEO that they really they've ever seen. So thank you. I really appreciate it. I always close with the same questions. The first, are you hiring? Yes. <laughs> Any key roles you want to shout out for the audience that might be listening or? Look, this year we're hiring 2,500 people. So we're hiring all over the place. So, you know, anyone talented in any of the functions, we have openings. Boy, do I hope them. you're not in that interview. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what do you, like, should they reach out to you, reach out to whatever the? I think it's jobs at databricks.com. Yeah. All right. Last one. What does the word grit mean to you? It means that you do everything that's humanly possible in your power to accomplish something. And even if you fail, it's okay. But you know that no one else could have done it. Like you gave it your 
everything. There's nothing you could have done possibly to fix that problem or overcome it or whatever it is, right? That's what it means. So like for my son's cancer, like I've done everything humanly possible. No one could have done more than I've done that I feel like that's great. And it's okay actually if the outcome, I mean, I hope in his case that he survives and has a healthy long life, but it might not work out, but that's okay. It's like, not, not you can't control everything. It's not, the world is not in your control, but then you know that you've done everything you can in your power. That's how we define it. Dude, thank you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.